John's Gospel begins with a mystery. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And just a few lines later, John makes the astounding assertion, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. On this Christmas edition of our program, we explore the connection between the Christian doctrine of the Incarnation and the tradition of healthcare as a ministry, with music and poetry and conversation. What is it about the Word made flesh that makes caring for humans and their bodies holy work? There's a long tradition of faith based healthcare, and it's our focus today on the Hear Me Now podcast from the Providence Institute for Human Caring. Hello, I'm Sean Collins. Thanks for spending time with us today. Merry Christmas. It took a couple of hundred years, but eventually the nascent Christian church, born in bewildered confusion in the Middle East, spiritualized in secret in the homes of believers and in the deserts of Syria and Egypt, found for a moment a single philosophical voice in the Greek-speaking world that's now known as Turkey. In the year 325, the bishops of the whole world gathered for the first time in the lakeside town called Nicaea, nestled between the Black Sea and the Mediterranean. Hundreds of bishops arrived in the soggy springtime, with priests and deacons in tow. The Emperor Constantine was there to observe, resplendent in purple and gold. As the church historian Eusebius wrote, the emperor proceeded through the midst of the assembly like some heavenly messenger of God, clothed in raiment which glittered, as it were, with rays of light. The assembled bishops had work to do. They decided a number of things. There were matters of canon law that they settled, like how many bishops were required to ordain a new bishop. They agreed on a way to calculate the date of Easter that combines both lunar and solar calendars. Oh, and they declared that God became a man. I believe in one God, they wrote, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary, and was made man. There it is, the incarnation in black and white. The rest, as they say, is in the living of it. You would not be wrong to look at all of Christian history since that first Council of Nicaea through the lens of this question. What difference does it make that God has the experience of being human? We want to explore the ideas that stem from the incarnation 
and add this question. What's the relationship between the incarnation and healthcare as a ministry? Here, as my conversation partner throughout the hour, is our friend and colleague, the Reverend Denise Hess, Executive Director of the Supportive Care Coalition. She joins us now from her home in Portland. Hi, Denise. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, Sean. I thought before we dive into some of the healthcare questions, we might begin with part of St. Luke's infancy narrative. Would you be um, kind enough to read the beginning of the second chapter of Luke's gospel? Sure. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole world should be enrolled. This was the first enrollment when Quirinius was governor of Syria. So all went to be enrolled, each to his own town. And Joseph, too, went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea the city of David that is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, to be enrolled with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. While they were there, the time came for her to have her child, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there were shepherds in that region living in the fields and keeping the night watch over their flock. The angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were struck with great fear. The angel said to them, do not be afraid for behold, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, a Savior has been born for you, who is Messiah and Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find an infant wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly host with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Thanks, Denise. On today's program, we're really happy to have with us three musicians who will be playing throughout the hour. Gabe Miller is a violinist who put the trio together for us. Gabe, thanks for helping us out. Merry Christmas. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah, Merry Christmas to you, too. So tell us who you've got playing with you today. Yeah, so I got two good friends of mine, uh, Elijah Cole on guitar and Nathan Pence on bass. Great. What's your first tune? Yeah, we're going to start off with the first Noel. Wonderful. Gabe Miller, Elijah Cole, Nathan Pence, and the first Noel.
so, so beautiful. Thanks, guys. We look forward to hearing uh, more from you uh, throughout the course of the hour. So glad you're here with us. Denise, it seems like one of the immediate takeaways from the idea of the incarnation is that having a body is not bad. It's God's repudiation of the flesh, bad, spirit, good school of religious thought. Exactly. So in many ways, the incarnation is an infathomably deep theological, philosophical, existential paradox. You know, how is this possible that spirit and matter, these things that we we do, we spend a lot of time keeping them separate, um, keeping them confined to their own corners, if you will. But the incarnation breaks down all those barriers. I think you're exactly right. That's what Luke is talking about here is something uniquely um, validating of the human bodily experience Mm -hmm. was occurring in those swaddling clothes in that manger. You know, I've, I've heard that incarnation compared to so many things, you know, it's, it would be as if Shakespeare wrote himself into a play or, you know, think of, uh, St. Gregory of Nazianzus, you know, his famous declaration of, you know, what is not assumed is not healed. So this sense of the incarnation of, as this enfolding, really this, this swaddling of all of humanity, wrapping up all of the human experience into the experience of God. And then lately I came across, uh, I hope this doesn't sound too irreverent, but this line from this poet, uh, Chris Abani is his name, and he said, for what is Christ if not God's own desire to smell his own armpit? Oh, my Lord. It's <laughs> <laughs> something about that, the, the, the real physicality of that, yeah, right? Like, yeah. So how often do we put the word God and smell his own armpit in the same sentence? You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> you know but for me the incarnation speaks of vulnerability of god taking on our human vulnerability and frailty from birth a very precarious time Mm -hmm. all the way through death and and as a result kind of endorsing kind of putting that stamp of very good, very good, very good on each, mm-hmm. each moment of, of our human embodied existence, moments that we might kind of want to hide away and tuck away in shame, moments that we feel uh, joyful about, moments that we want to put on display. All of it gets God's stamp of approval. And like, and like you're saying, I think it, it takes us a long way toward getting rid of that binary of are we primarily bodies or are we primarily spiritual beings? And the incarnation says yes to both. Right. And in fact, you can't have one without the other. We're embodied souls and soulful bodies. And the other line I think of is in this poem by Ann Porter, where she's reflecting on this encounter of an elderly woman in a hospital bed who's been laying there for who knows how long, um, ill and alone. 
and there's not a lot of context in the poem, but it's this encounter of someone coming into this elderly woman's room and bedside and combing her hair. And the line in the poem that sticks with me that she concludes with is, there's not a single inch of our bodies that God does not love. Hmm. I think, I think that's, that's what I hear in the incarnation, that, that our flesh is good. And not just our flesh, right? I mean, it's our, mm. it's our mind and our fear and our hope and our joy. Flesh becomes a metaphor for being human, but being human is all of those things. So often, I think a lot of us think about the incarnation as being just about having flesh, mm. you know, having a body. But this is also a man who had fear, mm. experienced great joy, and wasn't opposed to turning water into wine to make sure the party went on. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of human stuff that immediately we're told God wanted to participate in that. And therefore, it's it must not be not sacred. It right. must not be outside of what is lovely and beautiful to God. You um, shared with me as we were preparing for this hour, uh, Brian Wren's poem, and I'm wondering if you'll share that with the audience, because I, I think it's so beautiful. Mm -hmm. I remember the first time hearing this. It's actually set to music, and it's it's a hymn sung. I, I sang it in church one morning, and I remember just feeling uh, astounded that I was singing this uh, in church as I was singing it, and because uh, it's quite a unique hymn. It's called Good is the Flesh by Brian Wren. Good is the flesh that the word has become. Good is the birthing, the milk in the breast. Good is the feeding, caressing, and rest. Good is the body for knowing the world. Good is the flesh that the word has become. Good is the body for knowing the world, sensing the sunlight, the tug of the ground, feeling, perceiving within and around. Good is the body from cradle to grave. Good is the flesh that the word has become. Good is the body from cradle to grave, growing and aging, arousing, impaired, happy in clothing or lovingly bared. <laughs> Good is the pleasure of God in our flesh. Good is the flesh that the word has become. Good is the pleasure of God in our flesh, longing in all as in Jesus to dwell, glad of embracing and tasting and smell. Good is the body for good and for God. Good is the flesh that the word has become. That's really wonderful. I would love to sing that someday. <laughs> I'd like to live it too, you know. Yeah, even more to live it, that sense of all of it's good. Yeah, me too. When you look at the Gospels and you look at what Jesus does, uh, if someone were to ask you, what, what does Jesus do? I think probably the first answer to that is he heals people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there's a practicality to his healing. 
I, I think about the story in Mark's gospel where people bring a blind man to Jesus and ask him to lay his hands on the blind man. And Jesus takes him aside away from the crowd and lays his hand on his eyes and then says, what do you see? And the man has probably the best answer given in the Bible. I see people, but they look like trees, mm -hmm. right? It reminds me of going to the optometrist, mm -hmm. you know, it's like, is this better or worse, better A or B? It's like, I, I can see the people, but they look like trees, Jesus, if you could try again. Mm -hmm. And he does. Let's see if I can get the words right from Mark. Once, once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes, then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. And that is a typical scenario mm -hmm. of Jesus healing ministry is like, don't make a big deal of this. Just get on with your life. Mm -hmm. It's like restoring people to the fullness of their life. That restoration component, you know, as you were reading that, I was reminded of it's such a striking story of healing where there's a man and he's described as being tormented by demonic forces and so much so that he is an outcast from his community and and the gospel narratives describe him as living among the tombs and mm -hmm. harming himself i mean we can just think of personally um folks today in our modern world that we see caught up in in struggles uh, with psychological pain and psychological suffering and and just imagine the depth of this man's suffering and so what does healing look like in that context it looks like much more than you know let me help you with these wounds from the ways that you have harmed yourself with these chains, let me restore you. And I love the way the account describes him as once Jesus has healed him, that he is sitting again amongst his community, fully clothed and in his right mind. Mm -hmm. And that to me really pushes out the boundaries of of what is this healing ministry of Jesus? And again, I think we we see this enacted in the religious orders, in the many groups that seek to follow this, this type of example set by Jesus, is that even in healthcare, we're realizing we can fix the problem on the body, but even more so real, full, complete healing restoration means we also address the causes that led to the problem in the body. Um, you know, that, that you were living amongst the tombs, so to speak, that you were um, not fully clothed, that you were not in your right mind, that, that healing is so much more than the physical. It's, it's being brought back to yourself, to your community, to God. Um, you know, it, Pope Francis, he recently uh, issued a letter, Samaritanus Bonus, um, talking about the Good Samaritan. And I think, you know, we're so familiar with that, that narrative, that parable that Jesus tells. And it really 
is a fitting descriptor of what what uh, faith-based healthcare is trying to do is we are we are trying to be that one who when walking down the road uh, seeing the suffering one uh, beaten abandoned uh, left for dead that we don't walk by but that we pause and stop and heal a restore uh, using all of our resources um, to address physical, non-physical, all of all of the needs. We show compassion, um, and I really like the words that Pope Francis uses: "Is that we do that because we are all compelled by this common respect for what he calls the unique and unrepeatable wonder of each." human life. Hmm. I think the incarnation, again, puts a, a highlighter pen on the unique and unrepeatable wonder of each, each and every life. Um, and that the incarnation says Jesus became human to Better to be near us, another line from another Ann Porter poem, um, to be near that with us uh, then and, and always. We're talking about the incarnation and the tradition of healthcare as a ministry on today's program. My guest is Denise Hess from the Supportive Care Coalition. We are always interested in hearing from you. Write to us at humancaring@providence.org. In the weeks ahead, we'll be talking about the new administration in Washington and healthcare policy and what we might expect throughout 2021. And of course, we acknowledge the work of nurses throughout the world as we continue to celebrate an extended observation of the year of the nurse. Be sure to subscribe to the Hear Me Now podcast so you'll know about those episodes in the year ahead. We'll be back with more conversation and poetry and reflection and music in just a minute. Stay with us. You're with the Hear Me Now podcast from the Providence Institute for Human Caring. I'm Sean Collins. Merry Christmas. My guest is the Reverend Denise Hess. And we're joined by three talented musicians who are playing with us throughout the course of the hour. 
They're back now with a familiar carol, which has a healthcare story behind it, which I'll tell you about, but let's listen first to What Child Is This? so sweet. Thanks, fellas. That's Gabe Miller, Nathan Pence, and Elijah Cole. So here's the connection of that carol with healthcare. It was written by William Chatterton Dix, 
who lived in England in the mid-19th century. He was an insurance agent by day and a hymnographer by night. And at the age of 29, he was struck down by a near-fatal illness and was confined to bed for months. And that sent him into a depression. And it was during that time of convalescence that he penned some of his most memorable hymns, including the carol, What Child Is This?, which he set to the old English folk tune, Greenslaves. Denise, the, the mother-child bond is so poignant in that hymn. Um, what child is this who laid to rest in Mary's lap is sleeping. And that infancy narrative that we heard from earlier in Luke's gospel is earlier in that narrative. There's, it's really a celebration of Mary's agency. And mm. I'm thinking about the Magnificat and that heroic proclamation of God's involvement with humanity and Mary's cooperation with it as a, as a faithful Jewish woman. Mm-hmm. So calling Jesus the son of Mary, like Dix does in his carol, that has such nobility in it because it places Jesus in a proud line of brave people of a covenant and of faith. Mm-hmm. As we were planning the show, you shared Lucy Shaw's poem, A Blessing for the New Baby. I'm wondering if you'll read that. A Blessing for the New Baby. Lightly as a falling star, immense. May you drop into the body of the pure young girl like a seed into its furrow, entering your narrow home under the shadow of Gabriel's feathers. May your flesh shape itself within her, swelling her with shame and glory. May her belly grow round as a small planet, a bowl of golden fruit. And when you suck in your first breath and your loud cries echo through the cave, blessings on you, little howler, may Mary adorn you with tears and caresses like ribbons, her face glowing, a moon among the stars. At her breasts, may you drink the milk of mortality that transforms you even more into one of your own creatures. And now as the night of this world folds you in its brutal frost, the barnyard smell strong as sin, and as Joseph, weary with unwelcome and relief, his hands bloody from your birth, spreads his thin cloak around you both. We doubly bless you, baby, as you are acquainted for the first time with our grief. That's so beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Oh, sure. That's one of my favorites. Oh. So many layers. (laughs) So many Christian healthcare ministries Uh, were founded by women, orders of religious women, Catholic sisters and nuns, Mm -hmm. the deaconesses um, from what is now the UCC, there are Lutheran hospitals and Episcopal hospitals and Baptist hospitals and Presbyterian hospitals, many of them with women in administration. And it occurs to me that these are our first exemplars of women in leadership roles in healthcare. Mm -hmm. Uh, and they, they set the tone in 
so many institutions in so many ways. They really did. You know, as you were saying that, just coming to mind, I just was remembering some of the sisters that I've worked with during my time working in Catholic healthcare. And I got started at the Little Company of Mary Hospital. And in that particular order, the Little Company of Mary is named after the band of folks, mostly women, very small group who stayed with Jesus as he hung on the cross and kept Mary company as she was watching her son die. And uh, these sisters um, were a unique breed to me. Uh, I hadn't met this kind of of women in, in leadership before up until that point in my life experience. And, you know, I remember, um, you know, these sisters of the little order of the little company of Mary, you know, their special focus, like many of the orders then was on accompanying the seriously mm -hmm. ill, the dying. Mm -hmm. That was their charism to use their language. I would say their, their special focus or calling, and um, these were some uh, uniquely strong women. I remember I was working the, with um, a palliative care team, and the palliative care physician on the team asked me if I could go see Sister Mildred. So she was one of the sisters uh, of the order of the hospital, and um, she was struggling with a serious illness, and he had of course, prescribed some pain medicine to ease her pain. Um, from his point of view, she was in significant pain. She reported significant pain. And um, so the things that doctors do in those situations are to help with medicines. But lo and behold, Sister Mildred had no plan to take this pain medicine uh, at all. And uh, mm. so the befuddled doctor said, you know, I." I think it has something to do with some kind of spiritual something. Why don't you go and talk to her and basically kind of spiritually arm twist her into, into taking the medicine. And so I, you know, little uh, Protestant uh, chaplain that I was back then uh, went to meet with Sister Mildred and uh, began you know, just listening to her, exploring with her what her situation was, illness-wise, physically and otherwise. And then, of course, I had to bring up this whole issue of, and so I hear that you're not taking uh, the pain medicine. And and then from that point on, I was kind of in Sister Mildred's master class of, <laughs> of how to live well, really, and live well with pain and suffering. And so she um, clued me in on, on a type of approach to living with pain that it was very unfamiliar to me. And she talked about, and I guess friends I have who are, uh, have older friends of the Catholic faith say they've heard this all the mm -hmm. time. She, when she had pain, she would offer it up. Uh, for many, it might sound like this trite or kind of, you know, formulaic, but for sister Mildred, uh, as I, you know, not having heard that before, I said, okay, I need to know what is this offering it up? Well, for Sister Mildred, it was this act of deep spiritual communion and devotion. So she feels pain in the pain that she feels. Simultaneously, she 
experiences that pain as uniting her with the pain and suffering of Christ in his life on the cross, and therefore kind of the pain and suffering of really all of humanity. I mean, in in some ways, if we kind of lift the Catholic uh, tradition off of it, it, it's a very universal religious concept. We're all in this together. We're all kind of one in this. We're all, everybody's going through something at some time or another. And, and when we're suffering, we're not alone. There's a union and communion in that. And so she would offer it up. And for her, it brought her closer to mm. the love of her life. And so who were we to take that away? I mean, so that for me reframed. So pain medicine then actually was a tool that would potentially move her away, like, like make her miss an opportunity um, to be closer to this great love that she's given her life to. So that was a big eye-opener for me and uh, went back and shared that information with my team. And uh, they all had different reactions to that. Because, of course, right, one of our first reactions is, oh, you know, you take that to extreme. And we can all think of terrible right. ways that that philosophy could be used, especially if you're, if you're forcing someone else right. to offer it up, right? I think the key for Sister Mildred... And the other sister, Sister Terrence, is is that that was their own personal practice. Um, and then in contrast, you know, Sister Terrence, uh, if anyone in this small community hospital was in deep suffering, so parents just lost a child, a staff member um, sick or uh, in financial trouble or going through a hard family issue, you knew exactly where to find Sister Terrence. She would be right there in that patient's room with that staff person, bringing her presence and compassion and companioning whoever that was that was in pain. So, so I, I love the two-sidedness mm -hmm. of this coin. So on the one hand, their personal pain was offered up but on the flip side, the, the pain around them of those that they have been called to minister to was embraced, uh, was drawn near to, was enfolded in their loving presence and comforting ways. And so as you talk about women in leadership, I thought... Uh, wouldn't that be a new kind of CEO to have in um, American businesses of all kinds? What if what if one of the hallmark values that that CEOs had was, you know what? Hey, if I'm suffering, first and foremost, my personal approach to that is I'm going to see it as a transformative, potentially transformative event, and I'm going to be really leaning into that pain to use the common parlance. And then if a CEO's other kind of marching orders was, hey, and, and the corollary to that is any one of us, you know, either our people who work for this organization or people we, we serve or take care of or sell products to, if they're suffering, our first priority is to, 
draw near to that and try to ease and alleviate and soften uh, that pain they're feeling. I think that's a pretty um, new and <laughs> unique model of, of uh, leadership uh, for, for the typical American business, if you will. But I, I, but I think the sisters would not think of, of healthcare as a typical American business. It's a ministry. Yeah, yeah it's a calling. You know, I, I think about the, um, the communitarian motives that so many of those orders mm. had mm -hmm. and and having a mission beyond self-interest, a, a mission beyond profit. Um, and the example that those women in leadership, and I, I use the past tense and I probably shouldn't, although... There are fewer women religious running hospitals today mm -hmm. than there were a generation ago, mm -hmm. but there are still women religious running hospitals, and I thank God for them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I think about the example that they provided to their colleagues, like, um, and I know this firsthand, uh, again, I was raised by a physician and a nurse, that they had very close relationships with the sisters that ran the hospital where my father practiced. Yeah. And I think of all of these very smart, very ambitious physicians who were in partnership with frugal women who weren't that concerned about profit, but more concerned about the human beings that were in the bed mm -hmm. and about their social relationships mm -hmm. and how that rubbed off on the way people like my dad practiced medicine going back to the 1940s and 1950s. Mm -hmm. That was an amazing ministry. I mean, we think about ministry being to the people in the bed, but I think the ministry is also to the clinicians that they, that they have as colleagues. You're so right. Especially I think of nowadays, or I'm sure it's been going on for a while, but as people, unlike in your father and mother's generation, when People tend to stay in one job their whole life long. There was more of a sense, maybe culturally, of vocation. Nowadays, when gig economy and everyone's changing jobs and, and um, finding new roles, you know, do we always get to bring along that level of meaning and purpose with us? And I do love the way uh, the sisters, even though maybe they're not in the CEO role anymore or official leadership roles, still to this day, one of them will come strolling down that hospital hallway and there is a transformation. Their very presence, their look, habit or no habit, reminds everyone. They are a visible reminder of the higher calling uh, that healthcare always aspires to be. Uh, and, and so they're, they're irreplaceable in that sense. So Denise, we're releasing this podcast on Christmas Eve, um, but it'll be our current episode all the way through Epiphany. So I don't want the liturgist to get upset with me for talking about Epiphany <laughs> on Christmas. Um, uh, the story of the three kings is part of the infancy narrative. And it's always traditionally been seen as part of the sort of revelation of the incarnation. Now, I live in St. Louis, um, just a mile from T.S. Eliot's boyhood home. 
So this time of year, I find myself naturally going back to his 1927 poem, where an older person looks back on a moment earlier in life and tries to make sense of it. Here's Edward Petherbridge reading Eliot's Journey of the Magi. A cold coming we had of it. Just the worst time of the year for a journey. And such a long journey. The way is deep and the weather sharp. The very dead of winter. And the camels galled, sore-footed, refractory, lying down in the melting snow. There were times we regretted the summer palaces on slopes, the terraces, and the silken girls bringing sherbet. Then the camel men, cursing and grumbling and running away and wanting their liquor and women. And the night fires going out and the lack of shelters. And the cities hostile and the towns unfriendly and the villages dirty and charging high prices. A hard time we had of it. At the end, we preferred to travel all night, sleeping in snatches, with the voices ringing in our ears that this was all folly. Then at dawn, we came down to a temperate valley, wet below the snow line, smelling of vegetation, with a running stream and a watermill beating the darkness, and three trees on a low sky, and an old white horse galloped away in the meadow. Then we came to a tavern with vine leaves over the lintel. Six hands at an open door, dicing for pieces of silver, and feet kicking the empty wineskins. But there was no information. And so we continued and arrived at evening, not a moment too soon, finding the place. It was, you may say, satisfactory. All this was a long time ago, I remember, and I would do it again. But set down this, set down this. Were we led all that way for birth or death? There was a birth, certainly. We had evidence, no doubt. I had seen birth and death, but I thought they were different. This birth was hard and bitter agony for us. Like death, her death. We returned to our places, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here in the old dispensation, with an alien people clutching their gods. I should be glad of another death. Edward Petherbridge reading T.S. Eliot's Journey of the Magi. 
So there's a link between Bethlehem and Calvary. And in the Lucy Shaw poem I read earlier, you know, even that foreshadowing, that mentioning of Joseph's hands, bloody with Christ's birth, I think a link there too between Bethlehem and Calvary. It's not, it's not unlike how every parent on some level knows that each child's birth creates a new grave. Hmm. Of course, it's a grave that they hope is filled long, long after they've gone to their own graves, but it's, it's still a grave. That's so powerful. This whole idea of Calvary, though, is still so... Uh, I have to remember when you know, I step outside of the world of Christianity, it's, it's pretty uh, incomprehensible and not so understandable, the link uh, between something beautiful like Christmas and, and something possibly to uh, some eyes more kind of gross or horrific like like Good Friday. But I'm, I'm reminded of this story, um, this Buddhist teacher, meditation teacher, Sharon Salzberg, tells she writes about it that there was this gathering, um, this is years and years ago, of Buddhists and Christians, and they'd come together for a time to, I think, talk about, you know, things they shared in common in their faith and, and how they approached meditation practices. And as they begin this time together, there's kind of this awkward silence. And then one of this very, these very bold Buddhists in the group speaks up and says, you know, uh, basically paraphrasing, like, I don't want to be rude or anything, but, you know, I really don't get you Christians and your whole focus on that dead guy on the cross. You know, it's, to paraphrase, it's gross. Um, but Sharon talks about from that point on, just somebody naming that that difficult bodily, again, reality, opened up the conversation in directions that it might not have gone otherwise because it, it opened up a conversation about suffering and suffering's regular appearance in all of our lives and then what it means to have a God who suffers also and suffers with us. Mm -hmm. in God's own body. Because I think without, without the incarnation, Calvary or Jesus on the cross is just another execution. It's tragic, but it's just that. It's an execution. But with the incarnation, Calvary then becomes an extended expression of what the incarnation began, that, that at life's most difficult and most vulnerable, precarious moments, the moments we're most likely to feel alone or abandoned, even abandoned by God or love or others, that's when God is closest. Mm. And then I think that means then that, that, that a suffering God is the only God that can save us in our own suffering. You know, we've, we're at the end of a year that has been filled with suffering for a mm -hmm. lot of families, including your own. I'm, mm -hmm. I haven't forgotten the loss that mm 
you've experienced because of coronavirus. Um, I, I guess I don't want this hour that we've spent together to end without us remembering, you know, all of those families like your own who are missing someone uh, in a profound way during these holidays. Yeah. Denise, I'm so grateful that you've spent this time with us. Um, you're, you're absolutely one of my favorite people. And um, it's always a pleasure to have you here. Right back at you. I love, I love coming here and having these conversations and uh, look forward to doing this again. Absolutely. I hope the holiday season can be filled with blessings for you and your family and your new ministry. Yes, yes. With CHA. That's right. Thank you. Thanks a lot. The Reverend Denise Hess is Executive Director of the Supportive Care Coalition, now a part of the Catholic Health Association dedicated to providing high-quality palliative care to persons who are living with or affected by serious illness. Denise is licensed as a marriage and family therapist and is an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church, USA. Many thanks to our musicians uh, this hour. You guys are terrific, and I'm, I'm so glad you could join us. Gabe Miller, violin, Elijah Cole, guitar, Nathan Pence, bass. The trio is based in Philadelphia. You can find a link to more of their work on our website, uh, except for one of them who claims he's completely off the grid. I'll let you guess which one that is. It's the bass player. Our website is hearmenowpodcast.org. The Hear Me Now podcast is a production of the Providence Institute for Human Caring on the web at instituteforhumancaring.org. Our Hear Me Now stories are edited by Mike Addis and Allison Jakes and produced by Melody Fawcett and Scott Acord. The executive producer and chief health is Michael Drummond. We have research help from the medical librarians at Providence, including Heather Martin, Seema Bakta, Sarah Viscuso, and Amanda Schwartz. All we want for Christmas this year is for you to subscribe to the Hear Me Now podcast, wherever you get your audio on demand, and tell your friends about us. Share this episode with folks you think would appreciate it, and thanks. Our theme music was written by Roger Neal, Gabe, Nathan, Elijah, Denise, thank you all so much for being with us. You guys are great. I'm Sean Collins. Thanks for listening. And Merry Christmas, everyone. Be well. Thank you.